Hello and welcome to another edition of Thoughts from Player One, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at one story or narrative-focused game and give our thoughts about it. As always, I'm Alex. And I am, air quotes, Nick. <laughs> there you go. You can see, three episodes in, you already got yourself a little subtitle. That's nice. That's good. An yeah, honorific, yeah. if you will. I like to think that I'm holding it out for a little bit longer than some of your guests, but maybe that just reflects how often I listen, but that, don't worry hey, about it. You know, I mean, to be fair, most of our guests are single episode guests, and by okay. most, I mean exactly half. So that's like, <laughs> you're technically doing a little bit better than the majority of them, so nice job, nice job. I just want you to let Duncan know that I'm coming for a spot. I will let him know that. It's a collaborative decision. I'll also let him know he has nothing to worry about. So <laughs> Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we are closing out the series on FromSoft games that we started at the beginning of this month, and we are closing it out with Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Um, Sekiro came out on... March 22nd? I see, I had yep, the date yep. written as 322, three. and I was like, what the fuck is 3? I can't say 322nd, <laughs> that's not okay. It came out... 2021, <laughs> you say whatever you want, <laughs> nothing matters anymore. Anyway, Sekiro came out March 22nd, 2019, you can pick it up on PS4, Xbox One, Windows, and apparently Stadia, didn't know that until I looked it up, and Ooh. it is still somehow $60 everywhere you want to buy it. Um, uh, developer I don't have listed here, but obviously it's FromSoft. Um, and I'm I'm very excited to talk about this one and and close out the series and close the loop on all of these games until, uh, like I said, either we play Demon Souls or Elden Ring comes out. Who knows what'll happen first? But uh, I'm I'm <laughs> excited to talk about this one. Yeah, me too. Let's let's just jump right in. Let's start the same way we did before. Um, okay. Let's just talk generally, spoiler-free. We'll give a story summary that'll actually be a real story summary this time because things happened. Um, there is we'll, a real story. Yes, it'll be super uh, condensed. But before we get to that, let's let's talk generally how you felt about this game, um, how you felt about it in comparison to the previous ones. And, you know, there's not, so, a, there's not a third end there, but I, I trapped myself. <laughs> I got into an audio trap did. and I had to you find did. a way out. <laughs> I'll bail you out. Don't worry. Appreciate so it. I think Sekiro is my favorite FromSoft game. Hell yeah. And just as an overall package. So we'll talk about it a little bit more in depth later on. But by being restricted to having only one weapon, a pretty expansive moveset with that one weapon, but you just have the one weapon and you are just playing the one character, I think it really allowed FromSoft to dig quite a bit deeper into the full depth of the gameplay than at least I had experienced in the Dark Souls and the Bloodborne, because I didn't really go out of my comfort zone with weapons. But there, it just felt so good to play as the one-armed wolf, and it just... everything clicked from the world to the enemies to the bosses to the mechanics to the story, I think... They just have, this is the FromSoft masterclass in my book. How about for you? I, uh, two points. One, I definitely want to echo a lot of that sentiment, which is the only thing that I've said for the last three episodes in a row anytime <laughs> I talk second. Uh, and two, I just want to catch your just like real quick reactions on how you feel about um, like an old person talking about Facebook, describing the previous games as the Dark Souls and the Bloodborne like you just did. <laughs> Because I'll be honest, I heard virtually nothing you said after that, because I was trying not to laugh. 
Uh, Wait, you stop yourself from laughing on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, to me. strictly strictly trying to do some some highbrow stuff over here. Um, okay. No, okay. I did. I did hear everything that you said, and I think, uh, typically speaking, I, uh, I I agree with you on a lot of these things. I don't think we're going to run into a lot of dissent here in in Sekiro either. The, partially because there were just less avenues for dissent in terms of how we, we played the game and built it because it is a little bit more straightforward than previous games. But also just, mm-hmm. I I think they do such a, uh, like 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 you'd said, that, you know, they restrict you to one weapon in this game. Like it's the same, similar type of combat style, um, but with, you know, an additional layer of like parrying being, you know, a, almost an offensive ability in this one as opposed to a defensive ability. Um, mm-hmm. But they restrict you in that way. But that's like that's how we played the first two games that we right. mentioned. Like that's how we play. Like I played each of the games in the FromSoft catalog using exactly one weapon anyway, and it's the same thing here except for they just added a shitload more depth with that weapon because it was intended to be the only weapon you used. So I think a lot of this just works extremely well. There is you know an element of me missing some of the more fantastical elements of the previous games. Right? There's no um, like occult horror element to it there is no like yeah i mean there are some but it is not over you know the the world is not overwhelmed with gigantic and horrifying monsters right the majority of enemies and bosses you fight in this game are just like people or mm-hmm. grotesquely large people so it's, it's, it's certainly a more grounded story than any of the other from soft entries yeah but if you remember what i said in the previous episode my favorite boss fights in these games tend to be the ones that are just like against dudes so yeah I, I think all of those kind of collided to make Sekiro also my favorite um in my favorite entry into this entire from soft canon, for lack of yeah. a better word. So Yeah. And right. I also want to shout out the mobility in Sekiro because you get what is in effect a grappling hook very early on. And I think the Dark Souls and Bloodborne games are mostly two dimensional. There's a little bit of movement in up and down, but, you know, if you remember the platforming parts in Dark Souls, those did not feel very good. No. <laughs> Whereas in Sekiro, the movement feels very freeform, and it flows very well, and I think there was a big risk that FromSoft could have bungled the implementation of the third dimension, but I think they did a really good job with it. I also forgot until I was watching a stream of it recently how large of an aspect stealth is in this game. It's like, it's not really in any, like, you can sneak up on some enemies in other FromSoft games just by walking slowly so as not Mm -hmm. to alert them. But, you know, there's tall brush that you can hide in. There are abilities that will stealth you after kills. You can, like, silently take out full rooms. You can, again, use that mobility you were talking about to break sight lines quickly and then hide. Like it's there's a huge aspect of stealth to this game that I just completely forgot about until recently rewatching it. Yeah. But all that aside, I want to get into some of the questions we have down here. So we are going to walk you through a quick story summary. Um took some liberties here and cutting out massive chunks of it to make it I don't know, manageable to get through because it is kind <laughs> of a you know, it's like a thirty or forty hour story. Um Maybe? I don't remember how long it took to beat this game. That sounds about right. That, that feels right. The majority of that is dying to, like, four bosses, but, it, you know, regardless. Yeah, it's a FromSoft um, game. Yeah. So, in Sekiro, um, the whole game takes place, and probably should have mentioned this up front, whole game takes place in kind of, like, ancient Japan, I want to say, like, 1500s, maybe, like, yeah. feudal era, 
Um, there's actually a name for that era that I think it takes place in, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, so you play as a shinobi that actually is a character this time, um, typically referred to just as Wolf. Um, I think later in the game they start referring to him as Sekiro, which I want to say means one-armed wolf uh, in Japanese, but I'm not 100% sure on that one. Um, and your whole charge in this game is to protect the divine heir, kind of this like boy prince type figure whose name is Kuro. Um, so you go through this prologue trying to help him escape from um, basically from prison, you know, uh, and at the end of that, you run into a confrontation with Genichiro Ashina, who is the grandson of Ishin Ashina, who is a pretty important character later, who is kind of the ruler of this region of Japan. Um, in that confrontation, you're kind of forced to lose it one way or another, whether or not you win that fight and Kuro is taken away, uh, and the wolf has his arm cut off and is ostensibly killed, but one of the, the reasons that Kuro is so important is as the divine heir, he has the, the ability to bestow immortality on people, um, and he did that through an oath that you had, had formed with him to protect him. So although you lose that fight and he's taken away, you do awake later on in the uh, kind of a temple of the sculptor who is creating you know countless statues of Buddha, who is an extremely interesting character that's not going to come up in the story summary again. Um, and you, as you wake up, you set off for Ashina Castle to try and rescue Kuro from Genichiro, uh, at which point about 10 hours of gameplay happens, and then you <laughs> arrive at Ashina Castle, um, fight your way through, um, re-meet with Genichiro on top of the castle tower, um, and then you know fight and defeat him to rescue Kuro. However, Genichiro also uh, is not defeat like he's not dead at that point he has been given also the ability of immortality through the rejuvenating waters which is kind of like a man-made version of the the dragon's heritage that the divine heir has um and at this point kuro tells you that he he wants to remove this dragon's heritage from himself right he no longer wants to be able to be immortal and grant immortality because he sees it as kind of a, a an evil that will plague his life and those around him for the entirety of his existence. So he wants to perform this ritual to get rid of it, and in order to get rid of it, he has to have these various materials from all across Ashina, again, the, the place that you are living in. Um, so then proceeds the part of the FromSoft game where you just go to all corners of the earth to collect <laughs> random items. Uh, you do all that bring them all back. Uh, along the way, you do meet another character who becomes important in one of the endings, who is the divine child of the rejuvenating waters, who is one of, and the actually the only child to survive the um, awful experiments that were done in order to create the rejuvenating waters, which again is the man-made version of this immortality. Um, so you find them alive and kind of in like a, a holy place. Uh, you then again, this this I'm gonna refer to him as Wolf or Sekiro. I'm gonna interchange it because I don't. I'm not gonna be able to keep it straight. Um, you go back, find, um, go back to where Kuro is and find Ashina Castle, kind of under attack. It's not like a huge raid or anything. It, it, it is like a raid, but it's not like a war party. Um, so again, you fight your way through there, and then when you make it to the top of the castle, instead of finding Genichiro there, you find somebody named Owl, or the Owl, who is your adoptive father who you thought was dead, um, and he makes it clear that he is also there for Kuro, but as opposed to there trying to protect him, he is there trying to, to take him away. Um, the Owl then asks you to betray Kuro and, and help him as your father. He you know basically like stakes a claim on your loyalty. Uh, if you choose to follow that route and say, yeah, okay, you're right, I will, you know, abandon Kuro, you actually do get a different ending of the game. You fight a couple of different bosses. You fight uh, Emma, who is one of Kuro's kind of guardians and, and assistants. You then also fight 
um ishan ishan i think they just call him ishan ashina in that one um you fight yeah. them and then also and i didn't actually know how this this ending happened i guess i don't know if you know either nick so if you don't like spoilers cover your ears i guess uh <laughs> but you you fight through there and then the owl comes to like you know greet you and say like you did a good job and then you kill the owl um kind of and it's not even a boss fight you just kill him um kind of like stab him in his back at which point you know kuro is overcome knowing that you have become like everything that you hate you've become uh, you know shura i think is what it's called it Um, is yeah yeah uh and that's one of the endings of the game and you kind of see ashina go up in flames uh otherwise you betray the owl kill him to defend kuro uh and then um you know help kuro again continue on this story at some point in here and i forget exactly where which is why i paused there you can eavesdrop to find out that the ritual that Kuro was trying to do, which I don't have the name of the ritual written down, which is bad. Uh, this like purification ritual he is trying to do will result in him dying. You know, he is not able to purge the immortality from himself without killing himself. Um, at least in one of the endings. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you then continue on that path, you. I didn't. I didn't have a better way to phrase this in the story summary than I wrote, other than "Gotta ride the Rope Man Express to get those good <laughs> dragon tears from the Divine Realm," um, which essentially you you ride a giant rope man. <laughs> it's a. It's like it is a traditional type of doll in Japanese culture. I think I don't know the name of it. It's a rope doll, and he brings you very high into the sky because you're trying to get a dragon's tear from the Divine Dragon, uh, and then you are in this kind of like heavenly palace type location uh, eventually you fight the divine dragon and forcefully rip a tear from its eye um and then go back to ashina castle with that which is the final piece you needed for this ritual um where you find the interior ministry which is this kind of background uh military political group that has been on the edges of the story this whole time that is trying to unify japan and as such needed to take over uh, Ashina, the area you're in, you find that they've completely invaded and have, you know, overtaken kind of a, a huge chunk of the area. Ishin Ashina has died. I don't remember if this happens now or previously in the story, but he does die at some point. It happens um, and, at that point when you return with the Dragon Tear. Gotcha. So you return with the Dragon Tear and then find Emma, who informs you that Kuro actually fled, finding all of this. So you follow Kuro's trail and eventually find him in the same kind of open white field that you started the game in when you fought Genichiro. And once again, Genichiro is there and kind of has Kuro captive. Um, You fight Genichiro here for the last time, uh, and you will beat him. And when you beat him, he uses this kind of mystical blade he has to kill himself, thus opening a portal to the underworld to allow the spirit of his grandpa to come through, uh, (laughs) who then takes over (laughs) his body, and you fight Ishin Ashina again in his prime, this time called Sword Saint Ishin, who is the real final boss. And when you finally defeat him, you're treated to one of three endings in the game. Either the pr- the primary ending, where you give Kuro the dragon's tear, and he removes the dragon heritage from himself at the cost of his own life. Um, if you did a certain number of side objectives, you were working with Emma to find a different way to resolve this, at which point you still remove the dragon's heritage from Kuro. But instead of him sacrificing himself, you sacrifice your life in his place. Or the third ending, which is kind of the, like, secret ending, which I view as the canonical one. I don't know if you're supposed to or not. Um, but you work with the divine child of the rejuvenating waters to come up with an, uh, an even more elaborate scheme where Kuro still dies. 
but only his body dies and his spirit essentially lives on inside the divine child of the rejuvenating waters. And then the two of you go west to the birthplace of the divine dragon, where you will then kind of, assumingly, you're going there to return the dragon's heritage to its its birthplace by taking the spirit of Kuro there. A little bit's left kind of unresolved in that ending, but it also like kind of sets it up for a sequel in a pretty legit yeah. way. So yeah. that's the one that I like the most. Um, but that's like a real-ass story that happens in a FromSoft game. So I, it, it was surprising to me as I was going through that, writing it and speaking it just now, how much happens in this story. And it's coherent and, you know, like I said, a much more grounded story than the other FromSoft games. Yeah, and it's like it's it's good. So I, you know, that's that's the whole story. I, that you and I both, again, we we've beat to death the idea of how we play this game. We got the exact same ending. We got the complicated one because when we were getting close, we said, "All right, well, what what did we miss in this game?" And then we did it yep. and and got uh, ending ending C, which is the one with the divine child. Um, but knowing how that ends, knowing that there are multiple endings, and knowing how like everything happens, um. Just because we are here talking about the ending right now, did you find these endings to be like satisfying or or because I know we in both Bloodborne and Dark Souls in both those episodes we kind of talked about how there's multiple endings kind of but it don't really matter and like you don't really know what happens in most of them anyway and like Bloodborne has a little weight to it but Dark Souls we like Dark Souls three we didn't even know was ending when it ended. Um, oh did yeah. You, did I... you feel any of that here, or did you did you walk away from these happy and and knowing the other two without having gotten them? Did or other other three? I guess did you like those as well? Yeah, I I did, and I think it's much more of a fitting ending for what is at least to me much more of a fleshed out and complete story because you have you know, a cast of characters in Sekiro that are all much deeper than any characters in Bloodborne or the Dark Souls games. Mm -hmm. Characters that you can actually find yourself caring about. And so it's nice to have an end cap to that story that is fulfilling, that you can walk away from and think, yeah, that whole package that is the story of Sekiro feels complete. And I think they, they did a good job with that. Yeah, it it made me wish um, that I had more of a history with samurai and Japanese media in general, um, because I don't know how much of this was like them pulling on and playing with like tropes that have existed in that form of media for a long time, because okay. I've basically seen like no movies like that <laughs> so i've never seen like a kurosawa movie i've never which i don't think is was exclusively samurai stuff but i don't necessarily know that um yeah. like i've never i've never seen a lot like i watched the last samurai with tom cruise which is oh, the most that's... whitewashed white savior <laughs> bullshit you could pop but i was like 13 so i was like it's cool because i like tom cruise and there's samurai um because a fucking idiot <laughs> um but that's the, that is like my only touchstone for samurai media prior to like you know this and maybe a couple other games. Um, so I I would be curious to know how much of that is like I said pulling on those things. But you know disconnected from that, I did find um, I did find a lot of these to be very good. Right, like I, all of them all of them have a weight. Right, there's no ending yeah. that's just like. You know, I, I I feel like this is part of the reason I didn't like some of the Dark Souls endings. Is it's just like, oh yeah, you do a thing and like things change, and like it's it's neat, but you have to be invested in the world 
for it mm-hmm. to to make sense. I, like we had said, like we really liked a lot of that, but it was all in retrospect. But in in this game, right, the three endings resolve in like either Kuro giving his life, which is like this kind of beautiful acceptance of this this kid who is wise beyond his years recognizing his lot in life and the suffering it's causing other people or you giving your life instead of Kuro recognizing again this this child who has some specialness to him and how his life is more precious than yours and you can't necessarily atone for all the things you did in any other way or the ending that we got which is again this like beautiful ending of hey you know this this cycle of life continues but we are going to like continue this journey in a way that honors his memory and his spirit and potentially lets him live on in some sort of way and, and all of those are like powerful things or, or you know you're just like a shithead and you kill everybody <laughs> I, I'm, I didn't do that one i can't really speak to it too much i didn't watch the cutscenes either i just read about them so uh, but I, I think they they managed to tie it up in a way that I just didn't expect they would they would land. Like I don't come to FromSoft thinking there's any emotional impact to any of their stories, but I you know, I'm not gonna say I was like tearing up at the end of this game or anything, but I I think it, it is they closed the loop in a really a really profound and good way and, and I was very, yeah. very happy with it comparatively. And Sekiro has depth to the characters that makes you root for them in a way that you don't in Bloodborne or in Dark Souls. You know, I I can't think of a character in Bloodborne who I thought, oh, I really want them to get the best possible ending because I'm engaged with them. And Well, know, I... there was the weird cloaked monk dude in the shrine who's like, I just want friends. And he, uh, I wanted the huh. best for him. <laughs> okay. What Assuming he wasn't going to kill everybody, which I thought was possible. I don't fucking know anyone's name exactly right? i don't exactly. know father gascon's daughter's name either but i know how i feel when they die <laughs> yeah i i think a lot of the characters in dark souls and bloodborne you know they can have impact by dying or by giving you <laughs> stuff but in the character moment to moment yeah because the player character is a mute player insert not mm. an actual character it's so much harder to form a connection with these npcs yeah and by sekiro being a real character who doesn't have a lot to say but he is still a real character there is still back and forth between him and emma or him and kuro or him and ishin it really brings you into the story in a way that bloodborne and dark souls just can't yeah and and you're correct that he doesn't have a lot to say, but he doesn't. It's it's not like he doesn't have a lot to say by fault of character or writing, right? He has a lot mm-hmm. of. He doesn't have a lot to say because that is the type of character he is, right? That's the kind of trope that he falls into. And what he does say is like, it is it is well written, it is well defined, it it fleshes out his personality. Um, but the thing I like even more than that is, in in a way, this game leans into characterization a lot because in order to advance these quest lines right there you know like every other game there's a lot of quest lines that happen but there's a lot more interweaving with like the the main cast of characters but Mm -hmm. the you know it's not oh make sure you have this item in your inventory (laughs) before this moon changes phases and then you go walk to the side right it's the two main ways you 
get information to move the stories forward are either a eavesdropping and like actually catching dialogue of people like interacting and th- that is something that I, th- I thought about when when i was talking about this people don't fucking interact in the other FromSoft games like they no, interact they with don't. you that i cannot think of an instance where one character talks to another character in that game there yeah. are characters that are supposed to be together in some story element but they don't talk to each other ever <laughs> it's no fucking wild when i realized that um <laughs> but so that's you know eavesdropping and catching glimpses of these conversations is one of them but then the other part which again shows how hard they were leaning into characterization is like literally sharing a drink with these people and then having them tell you a portion of the story about their life and it's like not not figuratively like you are giving them wine and they are drinking it and saying ah that's good anyway here's something about me that you should know or here's a fun story that i was embroiled in uh and i think that made like that brought the characters to life in such a way that you know made them feel like we had said up top made them feel grounded made them feel real made them feel like they had uh, something to them more than just their existence in this moment and how it impacted your quest line or how it impacted their like you know impact on the world um it it gave the characters a lot of depth in a really smart way that was still intrinsically tied to your exploration and and you know decision making in the game um and i think that's just that's so fucking smart and i really really liked all of those conversations that you end up having with the characters. I think they add so much to your relationship with them along the way. They really do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great. Um, so talking about that a, a little bit and kind of moving forward, how do we, <laughs> we you know, do you ever like say a transition and you're like, I don't know where the <laughs> fuck this transition is heading to. I know what I want to say here is good material that means nothing, but fills air for three seconds. And then yeah, you say it and yeah. you're like, ah, fuck three seconds is over. And I still don't have a transition <laughs> point. That just happened to me. How do you feel about the world building is not a good transition, but it's where I was trying to get to. <laughs> Well, so I Fuck. think there's some <laughs> I think there's some really good world building in Sekiro. And I like the backdrop of the story happening in feudal Japan where, you know, Ishin Ashina and the Ashina estate controls this one section of the landscape, but they're not, you know, they're not the shogun controlling all of Japan. And then there is this interior ministry that is trying to unify Japan through force if necessary. But that's sort of the setting for the game. It has some impact, you know, later on when the interior ministry invades Ashina Castle and advances some of the plot forward. But the story is not the story of that political conflict. It is really just the setting. And I think that allows for some really good world building where. You know, when the Interior Ministry invades and you're fighting their soldiers, you know, you've gotten drips and drops of information saying that, oh, hey, the Interior Ministry, they basically have developed gunpowder and their guys are pretty strong, so we have to be careful. Now, all of a sudden, you're fighting them and they are strong and they're kicking the crap out of the Ashina soldiers and it puts, you know, a tangible menace to these enemies that have been in the shadows for the most part because that's not the main story. And I think it, you know, it just gives a good weight to the setting and backdrop of Sekiro. 
Yeah, I, I it like you said, it, the the fact that they use it as setting up until it becomes the impetus for the story to kind of move forward is is really really interesting. And I, you know, I I didn't think about it until you were saying it right now. But I, you know, there is an element of that the whole time where you are always being fed this idea that hey, there's something on the margins that could be really strong or like it could be a big world shattering event, right? Like even some of the eavesdropping you do between just like random soldiers talks about, you know, fear of this coming war and fear yeah. of the like this group over here. Um, but they like they like you said they do deliver on that in the last act of the game, right? You know, when you go back to Ashina Castle the last time in the Interior Ministry invaded like it is scary because they are the strongest enemies in the game up to this point you are watching an area that you had trouble getting through at some point earlier in the game just be completely demolished by this outside force right all of these areas that you had spent time in are like a flame and the Mm -hmm. the enemies you were used to just respawning and killing are being slaughtered en masse by this much stronger group that is like genuinely a lot more difficult to fight against and i think they the way that those two things weave in and the way that it sits so like neatly on the outskirts of the story to the point where you almost forget that it's a possibility that this interior ministry could like do anything up until the point when they do everything <laughs> is like really, really, really neat and interesting. And I don't think uh, I appreciated quite how well that was weaved in while I was playing the game. Like obviously going back and seeing Ashina Castle like on fire as you try to get to Kuro was extremely cool. Um, yeah. But I don't think I appreciated just how how much was going on there with expectation setting throughout the entirety of the story up to that point. That was that was well put. That was super interesting. Um, yeah, and they do. I also, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say they do a great job with that with the um, like power struggle as a setting in the background. That there's like, uh, and I think a lot of FromSoft games do this. You get um, like you get the opportunity to engage with it more than they force you to engage with it. Um, mm-hmm. but I think they do a much better job of giving you a lot of entry points into engaging with it, right? There are a lot of different times where you could read descriptions of, like, items, or you could do, like I said, these eavesdropping mechanics, or, like, people introduce this concept to you. And again, even Ishin Ashina is, like, a character who, you know, won this conflict and is now afraid of this coming, like, war, um, so you you can completely ignore that as you go through the quest and just be like, this is a story about a cool ninja samurai guy who's trying <laughs> to get a bunch of weird relics for this kid who wants toys to play with. But if you like, you know, the game doesn't force you to engage with it, but it gives you entry ways to engage with it in a way that I think a lot of the previous games don't. They're just like, we've got a bunch of cool lore and here's a link to the wiki page. Uh, <laughs> And I, I think that that is something that I, I appreciate them kind of finally fleshing out and coming to. And I really, really hope they continue in future games. I hope so, too. Uh, I also, this is something that they did in Bloodborne, but there's a gradual progression from the very grounded, uh, which, you know, when you start out, you are just trying to get Kuro back from Genshiro. Um to the very fantastical at the end when you're going to the dragon, uh, I forget the name of the area where you're fighting the dragon, uh, no, it was Fountainhead fucking... Palace, that's Yes, it. that's the one. Yeah, 
where, you know, everything is beautiful and it's some of the best color palettes in the entire game. Mm -hmm. And the music is fantastic. And there's just Rope Man. Yeah, Rope Man. (laughs) And there's this mysticism that permeates that entire area. But the game works up to that point. You are not going from stealth ninja killing soldiers immediately into Fountainhead Palace. You know, you gradually get there as you are working your way almost vertically up through the world to getting there. And I think that works really well for that transition from the grounded to the fantastical. And it's such a, like, that is the stark transition, right? Like, the game is... I mean, first off, the game's fucking gorgeous. Like, it it, it does is. an incredibly good job using different color palettes and different biomes to kind of accentuate the, the feel they're going for. But that's definitely the point when it's like, oh, God, they're doing something here in a way that's that's really, really cool, right? Because otherwise, you do have a lot of these, like, kind of standard feudal Japan-looking areas uh, until you start getting to, like, these gorgeous cliff sides and, you know, like, an underground poison swamp, which is fucking, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you get, like, a gunpowder mine. Um, but you get, like, again, it's it's pretty grounded except for just moments of it, right? Like, you know, early on, it's like, oh, you, you know, everything seems normal except for that was kind of like a weird rat person briefly but i don't it's gone he's gone now and like then they don't show up again for like another five hours and you're like ah cool i'm just gonna go through this valley and that's a snake that's a (laughs) hundred times the size of me okay that's terrifying and like that's really cool but then again it's sort of grounded after that right it's not like Mm -hmm. this huge shift along the way it 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 drip feeds the fantastical until you get to Fountainhead Palace where it's like, okay, well, it's just a bunch of snake people and there's a carp that is enormous that I have to swim past that'll eat oh, me because it's also... A terrifying carp. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess also you do go into the past at one point and there is just a human arm inside of a jar that wants carp scales so he can become a carp. That part's kind of, that's a lot. But, yeah, but, you know, it's in the past or a dream or something. We don't yeah. have to worry too much about it. Um, they do. They they also do that. And I, I think they they do such a good job with feeding you the story in this way because you you go into the past at one point. Right. This is the first mm-hmm. time I think you get like an actual flashback in one of these games. Right. I think you go to the past in some DLCs, but this is like a flashback of your life and events in your life. Yeah. Um, but in a way that fleshes out you know because you go back to um like an invasion where kuro was again kidnapped the first time by you know like an old mentor of yours i think um but like you you walk into this enormous battlefield where there's you know this whole village is on fire and you're fighting through and that's where you find your adopted father presumably dead and you know it ends in this big conflict and then it has like suspense built into this cutscene where you're stabbed from behind but you don't know who stabbed you and you still don't know who stabbed you because present day you had no memories of this entire day up mm-hmm. until the point when you like interacted with this this um I don't know I think it's like a Buddha statue or a bell or something yeah, like that yeah I, uh but they they do a really good job of of fleshing out the world in that in kind of all the ways that we've said um it's just a good fucking game it's like I haven't so good I haven't had a criticism of it yet and maybe we'll get to that point a little later on but it they just they really 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 do come into their own in in storytelling and 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 world building in a way that just felt lacking and it also i i I just appreciate that it didn't it is its own thing 
but it also didn't just feel like i mean partially because FromSoft is a japanese company but like there are some games that come out that's like haha we wanted to ape the japanese like ancient feudal <laughs> japanese aesthetic and that's all and it just like sucks and feels gross and weird yeah um and it's nice to play a game where they do that and it doesn't feel gross and weird uh again it's a japanese company so i'm not surprised but it uh it really they really nail so much of what they're going for here it feels like an authentic setting yeah 100 percent from from the the nice white flower fields to the weird buddha carving monk who uses his feet because one of his arms is gone who talks and basically riddles and always talks about how he's angry and wants to kill things just yeah. an authentic japanese set. <laughs> such a fucking good game all right so let's i i think we've done a decent job talking about um covering the things we wanted to talk about as far as storytelling and world building go that is divorced <laughs> from mechanics um the world's alive i should mention that it's cool i can't yeah. i can't talk about whether or not a world's dead again i just i burned myself out last episode <laughs> so that's cool and i enjoyed it um so let's talk about mechanically some of the elements of the games that um, we maybe enjoyed and didn't enjoy and kind of how that shaped our experience. I want to start just by like highlighting a couple of the like four major differences, at least the four major differences that I consider between this and the previous FromSoft games, because mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that kind of highlights why the experience was different. Um, first off, as we said at the top, there's no weapon selection, right? It is just one single weapon. You get yeah. a sword. It is the sword that you have. Um, you know, you get abilities to supplement that. You get, um, you know, your arm gets cut off early in the story, which then gets turned into like a, you know, mechanical arm that can do a bunch of things based on these prosthetic tools that you find throughout the world, right? So it can like shoot fire or sparks or, you know, throw shurikens or become an umbrella or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just one weapon. So I think that mm. that is a significant change because they didn't have to develop styles for each weapon. Um, there's also not individual stats to upgrade. So there's no like, oh, I'm going to do a strength build or I'm going to do a dex build or I'm going to do a, you know, whatever. It's kind of like everybody's just doing a dex build. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So um, kind of tying into that, there's no grinding because there's no stats to upgrade, right? You can you can grind out currency that you can use to buy items or you can use to put towards getting new skills, things like that. But you can't, uh, you can't, you know, grind to get more health before you fight the next boss. Right. Um, there are ways to upgrade your health, but they are gated behind specific encounters. And once you're done with those specific encounters before, you know, you progress, you're done with those encounters, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then the other major difference that I saw is there are skills to unlock, right? It is not, you know, and not in the way that, you know, in Dark Souls and Bloodborne, there are, you know, there's a magic build. There are just skills that supplement what you're doing, right? So there are obviously... Again, the, the shinobi prosthetics that we were talking about. So, you know, throwing shurikens and, and getting like an umbrella that blocks attacks, things like that are, are big skills. But then there are also, you know, you get uh, like the Makiri counter, which is the ability to step into a thrust attack to parry it. You get, you know, an ability to, you know, heal HP when not in combat or, you know, something to that effect. There are also then like these bigger abilities that you get as a result of like, oh, when you kill somebody you get to do something, right? You can, like, take control of them and puppet them when you, you know, get a sneak attack. Or, <laughs> this is my That's favorite one. one, you cut somebody's throat and it creates an enormous cloud of blood <laughs> that you can then hide in because it is an enormous cloud of blood and that gives you, like, helps out with the stealth mechanics. So there are, like, huge and substantive 
differences, right? We talk about the difference between Bloodborne and Dark Souls being like, oh, well, Bloodborne's quicker and you parry more, but at the heart, it's still basically the same game. Like, Sekiro is a different game. And, and also, you like, parrying is, like I had said up top, a little more offensive in nature because you are filling a stagger bar to then get a killing blow on somebody, which is other another huge combat change, but it's kind of different from what I was talking about prior and- to this, so... And I think the parry mechanics are so cool because not only the enemies, but also you have a health resource, but you also have, you know, a posture resource. And your posture is weakened by having your attacks blocked and parry. Mm-hmm. And so there are multiple ways you can fight. You can fight where, you know, you try to whittle down an opponent's health by getting a couple quick hits in and then you back off which is not the way of the wolf, but it still works. Or you can just be up in combat the entire time with just as frame-perfect timing as you can muster to parry every single enemy attack to demolish their posture bar. And when you break an enemy's posture bar, they stagger and then you can land a death blow on them. And most bosses have enough health that they can take at least one death blow but most regular enemies don't. So if you parry a couple of attacks, then you can just one-shot most regular enemies. And that is the best-feeling combat out of any FromSoft game that I have ever experienced. Oh, 100%. And, and you, you said that like you can play either one of these ways, but I, I, I don't even think that's true. I think you have to play both of those ways, right? I think the two are, are in concert, right? Like, you can be up in the mix there, but the you know the other mechanic at play is the lower their HP currently, uh, like the lower their health bar, mm-hmm. the less quickly their posture will regenerate, right? So, you know, again, every attack builds up on this posture meter, but then when they don't get hit or parried for a while, that posture meter starts to drain, um, but it drains much more slowly if they've taken a lot of damage. So it, it leads to the point where these fights have a natural progression to them of like this kind of in and out you know, dash in, get a couple of hits, do a couple of blocks, you know, take a second to, like, step back, heal, dash back in, and it leads to these long, protracted fights that feel like you are actually wearing an enemy down. Like, you're not, you know, you're not rolling in and chopping at their ankles. You feel like you are fighting them one-on-one, and you are slowly, like, very slowly getting the edge on them as they get slower and slower before you can, like, land a decisive hit. And it, it, it gives, I mean, like, A, like you said, it, it just feels phenomenal. It also gives the fights like almost a story within themselves it of this back and forth. And it's just, it feels so good. <laughs> and it's there's incredible. There are some attacks that you cannot block. There are sweep attacks. There are thrust attacks. There are grab attacks. And each of those you have a unique way of dealing with the thrusts. You can do the Makiri counter where you step in and parry it. Sweep attacks, you can jump over them and then do a jump attack on the enemy to do severe posture damage. And I think grab attacks, you just have to run the hell away from. It's awesome. It's grab attacks (laughs) where you run from or the other two where you become a fucking anime protagonist for a hot (laughs) minute and either step on their sword or like jump on their head and then stab them from above. It rules. (laughs) And it just makes the fights in Sekiro so dynamic and so fluid in a way that 
Dark Souls and Bloodborne weren't, at least in the way that I played. And Bloodborne had this sort of quasi-parry where you could, you know, shoot right before an attack. And you can see how that evolves into the fully fleshed out parry system in Sekiro. But again, like many other aspects of this game, it really does feel like From has learned a lot from their previous entries and just put out a real banger in Sekiro. Oh, yeah. I, and to be fair, I do know there are some people who really liked the style of build in like Dark Souls where you just got like a shitload of armor and a big ass shield and you just said, hit me and I don't care about it. Um, and you can't okay. do that in this, right? Like, you are trying to be a specific person who has a specific fighting style. Um, but that being said, I think this is a much, much more interesting style of fighting. And I think mm -hmm. the restrictions they've put on it, right? You only have the sword. You can only have this many abilities. We know that by this point in the game, you can only be this strong. Let's them build encounters with a lot more information in mind. Uh, which I think makes it so it doesn't really feel like there's hardly any fights in the game that you can cheese because yeah. they know what you can and can't do because they know exactly what build you're running because you can only be running one build. Right. Um, and, you know, there's like variation inside of there, but there's only so much you can do. And I think there's arguments to be made both ways for that because obviously the fact that you can only be running one build makes it feel a little less like an authored character, which it is less like your own character. Um, mm -hmm. Authored was the wrong word. It is a much <laughs> more was. authored character, but <laughs> it is not your authored character. Um, and, and the, you know, maybe reduces replayability because there's less, you know, we had talked about being interested in trying out magic builds and, and, and dark souls. So we can't do that here, right? You, I'm not going to go back and have a different build, right? If I go back, it's going to be the same game, but maybe a little bit harder. And then I'm going yeah. to do fights I didn't do before. But I think that they're, you know, they so masterfully crafted these combat encounters that I think it sells me on the idea of giving up some customization in order to have something that is more tightly designed. Uh, and, and again, to each their own, if people don't feel that way in certain combat encounters, that's totally fine. Or if they feel like it restricts them to a playstyle they don't like, I completely understand that. But if you liked doing dex builds in either of their, any, <laughs> or any of their previous games, I think this is by far the best feeling game they have put out. Yes, yes, it absolutely is. And let's let's not lie to the listeners at home. We are not going to make magic builds. We're halberds no. <laughs> shields all the way, 100%. Absolutely. What, I, I can't, it's like, it would be cool. If somebody could be like, here's the controller, I'm 20 hours into the game, here's the magic I learned. I'd be like, oh, this is kind of fun, and then I'd put it down. Yeah. Um, but I would probably go back and replay Sekiro just to relive some of these fights. And also, there are bosses this is the only one of these games where i can say this but there are bosses we have not yet beat in sekiro because they are you know tied to a different ending or tied to information that we did not look up prior to passing that and not being able to access it anymore so mm -hmm. there is actually good reason to go back i think they also patched in like a, a boss rush type mode which is really cool but and how did they not have that until they patched it into sekiro because that's such a big draw in the FromSoft catalog is fighting these bosses, so you know, give the people what they want. Give them a way to easily fight bosses. It just seems kind of like a no-brainer. You would think. You would think. And I'm, I have not messed with it, so I can't say whether or not that's actually what I want. Maybe it turns out that that's not what I want because it's just too much, but it is 
definitely something that I'm interested in going back and trying. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about because um, you were saying off mic you were boldface lying saying you didn't get frustrated <laughs> with this game which is not true because we played this game together and you got very frustrated with Genichiro because you know to be fair he's a little bullshit I got a little frustrated with Demon of Hatred who's also Lighting's a little bit bullshit not cool well um, okay so I think the first fight against Genichiro is the real skill gate or at least the first one in Sekiro and I had not sufficiently developed the quite the flow of the combat and the parries and the lightning counters which you only use a couple fights but like, i literally i think three fights in the whole yeah game. but i never used it and okay yeah it was a bald face lie i did get a little spicy <laughs> but in hindsight i think that just overall there were for me fewer points of frustration in Sekiro. You know, Duncan was pretty uh, lukewarm at best about the run back to bosses in mm -hmm. Bloodborne. And I think Sekiro still has that issue, but maybe not some quite as egregious as in Bloodborne. Yeah, but, most of the runs back to bosses, I think, in Sekiro are, are real easy, with the exception yeah. of maybe Guardian Ape. But also, there are no consumable healing items, right? Mm-hmm. And well, that, no, there are there are pellets, but it is not your primary healing item. Right, right. And it just, the overall package, I think it had fewer lows for me in terms of playing and the mechanics. And when it did hit those lows, they weren't quite as deep as Bloodborne or as Dark Souls. So the overall experience felt smoother and less frustrating. Yeah, I, I that is a lot of how I felt about it. Uh, I, I think the frustrating peaks, like the when frustration happened, it felt, I think, a little bit worse because it didn't happen as much. Um, again, Demon of Hatred, I, I end up liking that boss quite a bit, but it is definitely not a Sekiro boss, but it is no. in Sekiro, and so that kind of makes it feel much more difficult than it is because you've trained your brain to do this thing where you like, you know, you fight enemies by getting up there and staying in there, and that is an enemy where you can't do that. You have to, like, run around and kite him the same way you would Dark Souls bosses. Um, and so that level of frustration peaked for me because I was like, well, this isn't the, this isn't the fucking game that I'm playing. Like, I don't <laughs> understand what I'm doing wrong. Um, and, you know, when it starts to click, it starts to click. And he's also, like, one of the coolest designed bosses in the game and has, yeah. like, really, really good... Um, lore behind him with him being like a transformed version of the the sculptor character sculptor. that you meet early yeah. on. Um, it's all all extremely good, but I do think that you're right. Typically, these fights did not feel as frustrating, and I think part of that is just because because of the nature of the fight and the nature of the combat and the flow of it that we were talking about, and the you know like I had alluded to the the almost storytelling aspect of the fight. Uh, it it didn't feel as frustrating because it did it, it felt less like bullshit, right? Like none of these mm -hmm. games are actually that much bullshit, right? There's always some like <laughs> it'll always feel like it, but then by the end you you know, the thing that you got hit by, you won't get hit by anymore. But these games I think feel even less like that because uh, or Sekiro in specific feels less like that because of how high intensity it is and how frequently you are in there like trading blows. So, <clears throat> like, dying and having to come back 
feels more like it fits in with the nature and the groove of this fight than it does in, in a lot of these other fights. Also, you get, you know, I don't... We didn't mention this in one of the mechanical differences, but you can come back to life after oh, you yeah, die. That's, that's kind of handy. It's it's a fairly big change, but it doesn't like you know it doesn't drastically change the actual flow of the game. It's more of a you know like a it is a slight mechanical thing with some story based uh, elements to it. But I think you know it just the the edge of that frustration is really taken off by how in it you are in these mm. fights and how how much you can fall into this flow state in a way that, you know, you, I mean, you see a, a much clearer visual representation of you falling into this flow state with the, like, okay, well, I get the, you know, little, like, spark explosion every time I get a parry, and I see, like, that, I see a bar going down at the same time that I see a bar going up, and, like, there's just, like, a bunch of little visual indicators that you're doing things right at the same time that kind of, like, trigger something in my brain to make me go, like, <laughs> oh, cool, like, I'm doing well keep me in this state where I'm not getting frustrated with things. It, it uh, almost like flirts with being a rhythm game. It's not, but it fires those same sort of neurons. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I There is huge overlap between the people who are real good at TDR and the people who are real good at Sekiro. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, I'm not saying it is one. It just, you know, no, there's overlap. Yeah. Uh, it, it also, um, interestingly enough, codifies the idea of mini bosses inside the game in a way that previous games haven't right there are there are mini bosses in the previous games right there's hunters and bloodborne there's mm -hmm. you know black knights in dark souls one um you know there there are enemies that are like oh hey this is clearly a one-time spawn enemy it is a stronger enemy than other enemies in the area but sekiro like has them be named bosses that have boss health bars that give you specific boss rewards for beating them um, in a way that creates a bunch of, I don't know um, what the word I'm looking for is here. It, it creates like well-defined bullet points throughout your run between specific bosses and between specific areas, right? Like yeah. I can much easier, e much more easily like reconstruct areas of the game when I'm thinking about, well, where was that mini boss that I fought, right? Like, where mm -hmm. was the lone shadow in the well compared to where was Seven Spears Ashina compared to where was Drunkard Juzo, right? Like, and yeah. all of those I can put together and be like, oh yeah, I remember how this 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 fit together. Uh, and I think it also makes those one-time spawns feel much more interesting to fight because I, I, I mean, honestly, I think just giving them a name makes them more interesting in, in some sort of a way, right? Like, it, it it makes them feel integrated into the world in a way that I think fits with what we've been saying about Sekiro, where as a story and as a world, it is more coherent when you fight Seven Spears Ashina rather than when you fight Black Knight number three up on that one staircase mm -hmm. ten minutes after the bonfire. Yeah. It's, it's little things that build up in a way that did not... Again, I they're things I wouldn't actively think make an impact, but I really do genuinely think they do, right? And, yeah. you know, these mini-bosses don't, like, they don't have monologues. They're not saying, <laughs> here is why I'm here, here is why they call me Seven Spears Ashina, though we know why he's got a big-ass fucking spear. Um, like, it, it's just built into the character anything you might need to know about them. 
but it, it doesn't matter that they don't have like this big backstory because a you're gonna kill him in four and a half minutes and b <laughs> like you're not looking for a a concrete character to be there to fight you're just looking for something to latch onto that gives you just a hint at like the shape of what that character is supposed to represent uh, and i think that that inclusion goes a lot further than I, I thought it did when I was playing the game in terms of making those those fights feel a lot more memorable. Um, but on the flip side of that, there are also fights that feel a lot more, you know, on, on the flip side of this whole frustration and memorability discussion, there's like a bunch of fucking ghosts and every single oh ghost you fight God. sucks a lot. <laughs> yes. So. They have the worst status effect maybe in any FromSoft game, which is terror, where, you know, much like in the other games, you have a status bar that builds up and terror just fucking kills you. It's not a rapid poison or a slow poison. It's just like, hey, you like being dead? Here you go. You're dead. Yeah, it's... Oh boy, it's not fun. <laughs> no, no. And it's... they also don't take, like, they take reduced damage unless you use specific consumable items because they're ghosts, which makes sense. It fucking sucks, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not they... fun. When we got the mechanics to actually beat them, it was not so much, yeah, let's go do this. It's like, ah, oh, Jesus, do I really have to do that? Do I need the prayer bead that badly? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, I didn't, but I'm not going to leave portions of the game uncompleted. But yeah. they were never nearly as enjoyable a fight as the other mini-bosses or regular bosses. No, and to the game's credit, they are all, every single ghost enemy I think is optional. Yes. Um, may, maybe there's one in the pal, I know there is a ghost enemy in the palace, but I don't remember if you have to fight them or not. But you know, you can you can largely ignore them. None of the main bosses you need to fight are ghost enemies that you need these consumable items for. But fuck, <laughs> just <laughs> that is that is the one mark I will put against the combat of this game is some of those bosses are just not that much fun at all. Some of those yeah. mini bosses are just not that much fun at all. All of the bosses are are really cool and interesting. Um. But those those ghosts do <laughs> put a little bit of a damper on everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Was there anything I wanted to talk? Anything else you wanted to talk about mechanically before we just talk about bosses and enemies that we we enjoyed fighting? I like the inclusion of the prosthetics and how some of the prosthetic tools are more helpful than others against certain bosses and. It never felt required in a way that some other games have, you know, you have to use the flamethrower to beat the ice boss, otherwise you can't beat them. In Sekiro, Mm -hmm. there were some prosthetic tools that did help against bosses. You know, the Umbrella is very good against the Demon of Hatred, but you can beat those encounters without the requisite prosthetic tools. And I think that's, you know, that's the right design choice for this game. I agree, but by the same token, I think it felt like kind of a really good first draft of what could be a super interesting mechanic in a sequel to the game. Okay. Only because, like, yes, the Umbrella is is good against Demon of Hatred, and the purple version of the Umbrella is good against the ghost that shoots spirits, but outside mm-hmm. of that, the Umbrella is not that good. Uh, uh, it's good know. against people with guns, too. It is good against people with guns, that's fair. Um, like, the axe is really good at breaking shields then that's it. The yeah. spear is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm sure there's a use case for it. Yeah, the shuriken is good against enemies that jump in the air, right? But it's it's a lot of it just felt slightly underbaked. Um, okay. Like, you know, you get the firecrackers, which are good against every enemy in the game because yeah, they interrupt combos. Yeah, tier prosthetic right there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, like, obviously, if all the prosthetics were that useful, it would drastically change the feeling of combat in the game. But I do, I just wish they opened up slightly more avenues with those things. I wish there was a little bit more of a reason, especially because using them consumes a finite resource, so it's not like mm-hmm. you can just you know, spam these things. It's not like you can be, you know, you don't really use them in between boss fights that much because you are burning this finite resource when you do. So it's, you know, I really, really like it. I just wish it were ever so slightly more impactful throughout the game. But, you know, on the flip side of that, because the combat itself felt so good, I do can, like, I am a little concerned that if they were a little bit more uh, integrated, a little bit more impactful, maybe a lot of the edge of the game would have been taken off and I would have been Mm -hmm. less inclined to interact with that. But, you know, I'll be, I really hope they make something like Sekiro in the future. And if they do, I'd be really curious to see what they do with, with something like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I didn't, I, you want to talk bosses? Let's, let's talk some bosses. Let's do the part of the podcast. That's just for us. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. I feel like the rest of us wasn't. Yes. I feel like we've, you know, We've done a pretty good job talking mechanically about interesting parts of the game and, and the, the world and the setting and the story and all of that. Um, I do want to shout out, uh, if you, if for whatever reason, you're at this point in the, the podcast and you have not played the game yet, um, or you're going back to play it again and you played it with the dubs, uh, I do think the Japanese voice acting is 100% the way to go in this game. Uh, it mm-hmm. is very well done voice acting. Uh, and it just it fits the theming of the world so incredibly well. I've heard that the English version is still very good, but uh, I, I think you are doing yourself a disservice if you do not do the the Japanese version of it. Personally, but you know, to each and I agree own. with that. Um. So with that, let's talk about let's talk about some of these bosses. Do you wanna do you wanna do what we did last time and maybe give like a, a top and bottom or what do you, how do you wanna? Yeah, we could do a top and bottom, but I think we got to start with bottom because there's really only one right answer for the top. Yes, I mean, that's that's true. So let's do top and bottom and then Ishin. How about that? Oh, okay, that's <laughs> top and bottom presented by Ishin the Sword Saint. Yes, that's 100% correct because he is without a doubt the best boss in all of FromSoft games. Yeah, so um, I think my least favorite boss... Uh, there is the folding screen monkeys boss, which is more of a puzzle than it is a boss fight. You're in mm-hmm. a sort of dream state temple where you are chasing down, I think it's four monkeys and one of them three. isn't. It's three? Okay. It's well, three because you are invisible. talking to one that is telling you to get them. Gotcha. And Unless it's it, four. I don't remember. Go on. It's more of a puzzle than it is a boss fight, so I almost feel like it doesn't count. But also, even if it does count, I don't think it's the worst. I think it's interesting and maybe overstays its welcome a little bit, but doesn't border on the point of frustration. Yeah, so that that is something I did want to ask you about, because I know a lot of people kind of say, like, oh, yeah, fuck the folding screen monkeys or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, that's the, you know, that's the bad boss. There's a bad one in every FromSoft game. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I do think there's, like, 
there are these cheeky bosses in every FromSoft game where it's like, yeah. oh, it's just a mechanic. It's not really a fight. But I don't get the hatred for the folding screen monkeys because I do think it is such a nice, like, it is a cool world that you are in. Like, the little yeah. the level that you are transported to is interesting. And it's also so weirdly, like you had said, it's, it's dreamlike. It's bizarre. And I think it, it makes it really interesting, like an interesting break in between the action of the game to then chase these monkeys. I could see how it would get frustrating if you just can't figure out how to catch them 100%. Sure. But sure. I don't think I was ever like actively annoyed while while in that fight. I, I I still enjoyed it the whole time. Like there's like one or two points where you can die instantly, and that does suck. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like it's still a, it's a really really interesting setting, at least if nothing else. I don't know that it yeah. needed to be a boss fight, but it's a cool setting. It is. It is. Um, but as for worst boss i i might say the divine dragon which i don't think is bad and that speaks to the overall quality of the bosses in sekiro but i think it is underwhelming for what it is you know this is a divine dragon this is by far the most amazing thing you have seen you are basically fighting it in heaven and the mechanics of it just aren't very interesting and I wanted a lot more out of it. You know, maybe because Sekiro's got such an intense focus on these, you know, smaller scale 1v1 fights that it's harder to scale up to something celestial like this dragon. But I did, I thought it was cool. I thought it could have been much, much, much more interesting. Hmm. I find it really hard to agree with you because... I mean, it's it's the same sort of thing again. It was not the most interesting fight, but it was just so cool. It was so it cinematic. Was. It really was. I was willing to forgive basically all of the mechanical annoyances. I mean, I'll, also, I, I think I just like the deflecting lightning mechanic more than you did. So yeah. I didn't mind I that being the crux it right. of it. Yeah. I, I also think there's something interesting in the fact that, like, hey, this is the only boss in the game that you either do not or cannot kill right like you cut open it's like you know tear duct to take an eye from it but there's no way for you to kill the divine dragon because it is an unkillable divine dragon Uh, and i think that's you know it it makes it feel like it's not trying to kill you in a way because you don't mean that much to it um okay so then what's your worst it's so it's probably the corrupted monk who is like, okay. there's a monk that guards the palace who is cool, and I liked fighting. Then there is a spirit version of that monk that you fight before you get to that original monk, and that fight kind of sucks, I think. Um, it doesn't suck. It doesn't <sighs> yeah. suck. It's just I got frustrated with it. The other one I would contrast with it is Gyobo, Gyobu Masataka Oniwa, who mm-hmm. I don't really even remember that much because he's really <laughs> fucking easy and pretty much everybody beats him first try. Yeah, um, it's just like a cool dude who rides around on a horse. He does like he lives in a special place in my heart though because the <laughs> English voice acting is fucking wild. <laughs> like 
<laughs> the Japanese voice acting is him being like really reserved as he rides out to fight you in combat, and the English voice acting is him busting through a gate, screaming his name at the top of his lungs. And it's that amazing. fucking rules. You should so, look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's fantastic. It's it's so good. So he he holds a place higher on my list than he deserves. Um, so I would I would put Corrupted Monk as my least favorite boss in this game. You know what? You might have convinced me on Corrupted Monk because Divine Dragon was really cool. I was I just wanted more out of it, but Corrupted Monk is just kind of meh. Yeah, and, and uh, to clarify, I'm looking at a boss list here that does not include. Uh, I don't believe this includes any of the additional like non-required bosses. I think there are some on this, some that are not on this list. Right? There's no like two versions of the apes on this list. Um, I think there's more, but this is the majority of them, so it doesn't really matter. And we're not counting mini bosses in this list, obviously, because right? How right, would we do that? Mini bosses. Um, for favorite boss that is not Ishin, though, that's where it's a real, it's a real big fucking tie, isn't it? <laughs> just, just, just a lot of them, because it's Genichiro it's like has to be tie. up there. The Guardian Ape has to be up there, and Lady Butterfly has to be up there. Uh-huh. Also, the owl that you are forced to fight is really good, but I don't think it's as good as Genichiro, so he wouldn't be up there. Um, I don't so know it's... if I agree with that. I liked... I think I just like the design of Genichiro more, so if the two fights are more or less even, I'm going to enjoy Genichiro more. So um, I like the owl fight because it's a mirror of your skill set. He is your adoptive father. He taught you about mm-hmm. being a shinobi. And so he has the same sort of tricks that you do. And so it's a cool mirroring that works for both the story and the fight for me. That I, I, I think that's completely fair. Um, I, would, I think I would give it gun to my head. I think I'd give it to Kenichiro, though. Okay. Guardian Ape is so fucking cool, though. It's so it's <laughs> an ape with a giant sword through its neck, and you use the sword that's through its neck to cut its head off, and then it picks up its head and fights you anyway. It's so fucking cool. Oh my god, it's amazing. And then after you beat it, there is a secret boss that is that headless ape that you have killed a couple of times now, and you fight it in a cave. And it calls its mate. So you are fighting two giant apes at once when one of them was a boss previously. And I think that's got to be my second favorite behind Ishin Sword Saint because you don't know that there's going to be a second giant ape at the start of that fight. You're not even sure that that is a boss fight. You just see the corpse of the headless ape and you get there and it gets up and then all of a sudden there's two of them. (laughs) And that's a hell of a feeling and a hell and it, of a fight. That's really fucking cool. It is extremely cool. Shoutouts to that fight. But I gotta get I still I it's just it's it's just a little bit too much. It's a little too much of not what I wanted, which is to be able to stand right next to somebody and perfectly <laughs> time my blocks. Okay. But it is fair. extremely cool, so I, I respect that pick. Yeah. And but then Number one with a bullet is Ishin the Sword Saint. <laughs> number one with a bullet. See what I did Glock. there. He pulls out a Glock in his second form for some goddamn reason. He's he just like, what? I didn't get you with tier one. How about this? Brah, brah, brah. And <laughs> what the fuck, man? Ishin of the West Side. He's just, 
such a fantastic boss. It is the perfect culmination of not only the mechanics and enemies of Sekiro, but also the story. And I don't think any other boss in the entire FromSoft catalog can hold a candle to Ishin Sword Saint for me. It's... Yeah, I mean, there are there are great bosses in every FromSoft game, but this is, like you said, it is the... It is everything I wanted out of this fight, right? It is a mm-hmm. short run back to the boss, which is incredibly important. You <laughs> respawn right outside boss, of it. Yeah. Um, it is a, like, a three, technically four-tiered fight, right? Yeah, because you do fight Genichiro at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You, so you fight Genichiro, and then you fight the first, you know, Ishin bursts out of his body like a fucking alien. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, then you fight him, and then in his second form, he gets, like, a big fucking spear and a gun, and then his third form, it, like, can control lightning and shit, yeah. and it's just, it's so cool, and it layers so much on top of itself that it feels like, again, you just, you're constantly in a state of learning with that fight, because you are having to memorize new patterns, you are having to completely rethink, you know, the ways in which your attacks are working, but it's also, like, the game 100% hammers in the like core idea of hey like this is the culmination of everything you learned and mm-hmm. if you learned anything then you know what that means is don't fucking let up like figure yeah. it out and just stick in there and be ready for a fight that can go south incredibly quickly but if it doesn't ever go south it's going to you know it it is choreographed like a dance and it's so so rewarding to move from each phase into the next one as you slowly get better and better and better and stop taking, you know, any damage and then, you know, get to the next form without taking any damage and then finally manage to beat him. It's just, it's, it's an incredibly put together fight. It's, yeah, I just, I can't say enough (laughs) good things. It's the culmination of everything about this game. And this is one of the best feeling games of all time. So it is in many ways, like, maybe one of my favorite moments in video games full stop yes is is fighting ishin which is saying and, a lot because i tend to you know stick toward narrative games more than right than mechanical right and if you know people have asked why do you play these games if they are so punishingly difficult and it is the feeling i get while fighting ishin the sword saint and eventually beating him that is why i play these games because it just feels so good that back and forth and that push and pull and oh i finally got to the third form for the first time and then he immediately killed me but i know i'm making progress and Mm -hmm. culminating with the win it's just it is a unique experience in gaming for me and just you know it is the peak of all of the fromsoft catalog yeah but i don't remember like this was this was one of the two fights in all every combination of every fun sauce game we've ever played three fights i think that mm-hmm. like we didn't beat when we started it right like there was a break like we stopped we played yeah. uh, fought him and then just came back to it a different day because we weren't going to be able to beat him one day but uh, it was the only one of those where i didn't feel frustrated by the fact that we had right. to stop like it was right. just such a joy to be participating in that combat that i didn't mind continuing to do it. i almost wanted to keep losing because i just enjoyed that fight so much yeah. right like when i say it was choreographed like a dance it was you know there is i think an entire twitter account devoted to just 
like high you know 60 frames a second high res Sekiro gameplay slowed down to make it seem more cinematic than it does in the game but there's nothing that they do like they don't change anything that like it's not like they're changing the models or anything it's not like they're adding effects right they're just slowing it down and making you see how gorgeous it looks in motion and this you know just watching yourself fight Ishin is so (laughs) rewarding within of itself that losing over and over again did not push me towards the edge and no it just made me want to keep trying it and losing to ganichiro after getting the third form of vision though that one did that one did oh yeah that that one was like oh okay i'm a fucking idiot i get it i get it i get it my bad my bad but god what a thing we should play sekiro again (laughs) we should play sekiro again you're right what a good video game i think that concludes it i think that'll put us about an hour and 20 ish minutes maybe an hour and 10 minutes which is perfect right where i wanted to be um do you have anything else you wanted to say about sekiro shadows die twice i think that if you have not played this game you should it's pretty good agree i also think that if you have not played this game you should have dipped out much earlier in this podcast (laughs) but here we are um so yeah that was again Sekiro Shadows Die Twice pick it up PS4 Xbox One Windows and Stadia it's about $60 still um so that concludes our our month of FromSoft I don't think it's all going to come out in the span of one month but you know hey we all we recorded all of them inside of the same month and that's what counts in the next three days exactly (laughs) um we will be moving on to non-FromSoft games after this Duncan will be hopping back on now that we'll be getting back to games that he has played I'm hoping to, you know, keep doing some interesting things like this in the future, but absolutely um, glad that we got an opportunity to talk about this game. Glad that we could get yeah. you on the podcast, Nick, so you could uh, you can hang out and talk about these fen- phenomenal games. I've talked about the way that we play them like four or five times in the podcast <laughs> previous, so it's good to be able to add a little bit of, uh, you know, context to that. Yeah. Um, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's absolutely. been a uh, lot of fun. If ever you have games that require mechanical skill that Duncan just can't hack, let me know. I'd be happy to come back. Wow, shots fucking fired and he can't even defend (laughs) himself. All right, cool, cool, cool. Best kind (laughs) of shots to take. (laughs) Um... So let's let's get through this all real quick. First off, I should I didn't ask you either of the other two because I'm pretty sure the answer is no. But is there anything you would like to plug? Because we have to ask that of every guest that comes on here. Uh, my guess is no it's okay if the answer is no but if you have anything that you're like hey one of my friends is doing something cool that i want people to check out or something like that you're more than welcome to plug it here uh the only thing that i would plug is the thoughts from player one podcast but i think you got that covered yeah not a problem at all just wanted to give you the opportunity in case you were working on any sort of a competitor in the background that i did spay and neuter your pets maybe my wife's a vet so does that count that absolutely hey you heard it here first folks if you never watched the prices right (laughs) uh so if you are interested you can follow us on twitter at at thoughts from p1 that is thoughts from p1 with the numeral one we tweet mostly about when 
we are going to be going live on Twitch or when new episodes come out. But hey, every now and again, we get a good one out there. We fire a nice one out into the ether. I believe the last tweet I put out there was with a personal plug for myself telling everybody to watch Jujutsu Kaisen. I stand by that 100%. Please go watch Jujutsu Kaisen. Um, if you would like to email us with any suggestions, feedback, any games that you want us to play, anything like that, you can reach out to us at, at thoughts or gmail.com at thoughts from player one. That's player one O N E. Um, we have gotten game suggestions and we have played them in the past through there. So that's absolutely the best way to reach us. Um, one of those two, if you're interested, you can follow us on Twitch. We are, um, twitch.tv slash thoughts from player one. We are finishing up, uh, I believe we'll, you know, we will have finished it by the time this episode goes up, but we just finished our uh, run of Danganronpa Trigger Happy Havoc. We are also playing some Darkest Dungeon and towing around with some other ideas now that uh, now that we are done with Danganronpa 1. So you can go check that out. Uh, I believe that is everything. We do have a Facebook page. You can go follow us there as well for all the hot updates that are whenever we tweet and it automatically goes to Facebook as well. And yeah, with no further ado... This time with a little more gusto because I did not really have my heart in it last time. We are going to hear another beautiful and informative and hilarious and interesting fact from none other than the unstumpable Michael. It's a little better when you get into it. I didn't feel it last time, but I, I leaned away from the mic a little bit this time and I felt it yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it. Hopefully it's a good fact and it's not just an asshole about it. We'll see. Who knows? <laughs> That's on him. This plant fact is going to be spicy. Michael here with your plant fact of the day. Last episode, I talked about how some plants produce tasty berries and fruits to help their seeds get eaten and dispersed. But what about hot peppers, whose fiery taste seems to actively deter anyone looking for a meal? Capsaicin, the molecule responsible for pop pepper's burning heat, actually serves a purpose other than taste. It helps prevent fungal growth, protecting the fruit and the seeds. Even more interesting is the fact that birds don't seem to react to capsaicin and can eat it without any ill effects. In fact, hot pepper seeds have co-evolved with birds so well that a study reported increased hot pepper seed germination when eaten by birds compared to just mammals. That's your plant fact of the day. Thanks for listening. Tune into the next episode of Thoughts from Player One for more video game discussions and plant facts.